0: Welcome to Oberta Dicta, Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's podcast on all things legal and tax with myself, Rachel Sherlock and Gronia McMahon. On this episode, we speak to Simon Mills, who made the transition from GP to Senior Counsel and is now one of Ireland's top barristers in the area of negligence law.
1: On my first night on call, I wore two white coats so that I would have two extra pockets in which to put extra books in order to plug what i thought would be the inevitable gaps in my knowledge and look I, you know the, the reality is that i didn't want to be there uh, and look i think it probably showed
0: simon speaks about why he made the move from medicine to law working on the right to die case and cervical check among other difficult cases we hope you enjoy this episode Simon, you've had quite the career—from stints on the radio to GP to barrister, as well as author with Bloomsbury. There's so much to chat about. Can we start with your days on the radio and working with the late Jerry Ryan?
1: That sort of happened by uh, by accident, really. Um, I found myself becoming the medical agony uncle for the Sunday World, um, which was. Um, I think mercifully, I suppose, uh, in the, the pre internet days. Uh, but I was for a period, Dear Dr. Simon on the Sunday World. And I did that from about uh, 1990, 1997, I think, for about eight, eight or nine years. And there was a close enough link to um, the Jerry Ryan show at the time. And so I got invited to go and uh, meet Jerry. Uh, we had a, a very boozy lunch. And during the course of the boozy lunch, uh, I agreed to have a crack at being the Jerry Ryan Show doctor, and uh, it was brilliant fun. Uh, it, it's it's one of those things that um, uh, I think everybody you know, you're not you're not normal if you don't feel nervous going on live radio or in any form of of live media. Um, but being on with Jerry had two other random factors. Um, The first was you never knew what the next question was going to be. And the second thing that you knew was that if you gave him any chance to go below the belt uh, in general terms, uh, he would take that chance. So it it meant that in doing the interviews, you had to be careful, uh, first of all, to be as factual as possible. Uh, and to try and slam as many doors uh, as possible to conversations that you felt slightly uncomfortable about having as a professional. But he was such a brilliant broadcaster. And uh, I mean, it's hard to imagine um, for anybody, for any kind of neophyte to the word, world of broadcasting to get a better introduction than to have had a fortnightly 20 to 30 minutes on, on the radio with Jerry Ryan.
0: Did you always want to become a medic or a doctor?
1: I just wanted to go to Trinity, really, which is a terrible way to, to plan your future. Um, but when it came to filling out the CAO form, I just listed subjects in the order that I kind of thought it might be interesting to do them. You know, I did a, I did a good it was back in the days when leaving cert was easier, I think. Uh, I did a good leaving cert, got into medicine. And on the first morning of the first day of the first week of the course, we had this lecture uh, about physics, about the fundamentals of physics, and I hadn't done physics for the insert. And uh, I remember looking around my class and going, I have made the most terrible mistake. But then kind of with one thing and another, I ended up not leaving. I kind of immersed myself in university and kind of forgot I was doing medicine until June 1993, when I almost by accident graduated as a doctor. Uh, I was a a very fortunate graduate I could do my finals another 20 times and if I passed them once I'd be doing well so I just got lucky.
0: With, with such an inauspicious beginning what was life like as a medic then did it kind of hit you out of the blue?
1: The one thing that gets doctors in trouble um, a lot is particularly at the start of their career is not knowing what they don't know I knew I knew nothing I, I knew that I had done the absolute bare minimum um, that would get me through the course in fact my class were There were people in my class who were so outraged at the fact that I passed my finals that they organized a petition to the dean demanding that I not be allowed to graduate on the basis that, not having been in for most of the preceding six years, I couldn't possibly know anything. And to be fair, they had a point. Um, But the only problem was that I hadn't come bottom of the class. So if I knew nothing, what about the eight or nine people below me who'd also passed but had done the work uh, and and who who uh, who still got worse marks than me. Uh, anyway, in the end, the petition went nowhere. And once I knew it was going nowhere, I asked I asked to sign it. That definitely knocked knocked things on the head. Um, but what it did mean was kind of going to work on the first day. I, I knew I knew nothing. So um, doctors, when they first start, carry around all of these little primers, these kind of short books, just to help you refresh things that maybe that you didn't know. On my first night on call, I wore two white coats so that I would have two extra pockets in which to put extra books in order to plug what I thought would be the inevitable gaps in my knowledge. And, look, I, you know, the, the reality is that I didn't want to be there. Uh, and, look, I think it probably showed. Um, and I, I very much struggled through my intern year, and I must have been a nightmare to work with. As that year wore on, I think I, I kind of realized that, well, look, this is my job now um, and perhaps developed a, a little bit more of a sense of moral responsibility that I needed to develop. Applied to, to do a general practice training scheme and got on the scheme and then all of a sudden I was now a, I was now a, a GP trainee um, which I then did for another three or four years also hating it, uh, also not being very good at it um, and then in the same year um, I applied to go back to UCD to do law uh, and also took on a job in a city centre medical practice uh, where I adored working, funnily enough. So I then spent those years in parallel uh, studying law and really growing to like urban general practice.
0: I guess in some ways that it explains to a certain extent what made you change careers. But I guess, was there a particular reason you chose
1: law? Well, I mean, what, what I spent my whole time doing in um, Trinity in extracurricular terms anyway, um, was debating. Uh, I, did, I did I did quite a bit of writing. I, I wrote for some of the college magazines, but really spent most of my time debating. And that does hone a particular kind of uh, particular skill set. Um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Outliers, this idea that you get good at something just by, you know, ultimately by practice. And not the most brilliant uh, insight anyone's ever had, but the, you know, the observation that just by doing something, you, you get better at it. And I I did a lot. Um, so, you know, that was somewhere that made sense to go. And I do remember one evening uh, sitting around with some of my classmates in, I don't know if you know Trinity at all, but, but in, the, in, the, in the sports fields, there's a long jump pit. And for some reason, at the end of a very long night, we were all sitting really quite drunk in the long jump pit. And two of my classmates turned around to me and said, you are going to be a terrible doctor, although the, the word they used wasn't terrible. I wouldn't go anywhere near you as a doctor. Um, and fair point but you know I think he'd be a brilliant lawyer and then in fifth year in medical school I did rubbish in all of my exams except that there was one on medical law and I came uh, quite high up in the class and there was one on medical ethics and I came quite high up in the class which is slightly ironic given my attitude to a medical education and you know it just started to dawn on me that, that you know that if I had an aptitude for anything that was probably what I had an aptitude for and then Uh, In fifth year, my eldest daughter was born, so I kind of had to get a job and I had to graduate and I had to do all of that kind of stuff. So it was at the end of the GP training scheme, I was away in South Africa with some friends and one evening, literally sitting on this bench, staring at Table Mountain, they light Table Mountain up until the small hours of the morning, the lights went out and I was sitting in the complete darkness and I just had one of those moments, what the hell am I going to do? there. And then I thought, when we get back to Dublin, I'm going to apply to do law and take it from there.
2: Simon, can I talk to you about uh, the rise to senior counsel? Because I know that you were junior counsel in 2002. And then if I'm correct, it was 2018 that you became senior counsel. A lot of barristers tend to be a little bit um, wary of taking silk. So what was that journey like for you?
1: I had reached the point where I just thought it might be more interesting to be a senior counsel um, and people do it for all sorts of reasons i mean people people do it because they're absolutely swamped as junior counsel and feel that'll uh, they, that their quality of their life will improve slightly if they if they take silk people so people do it for all sorts of reasons i, I mean, it just felt to me like it was probably the right time. I felt that um, there were enough indications coming from clients to suggest that they might trust me with cases if i if i uh, took silk and i also because i started later than other people so I, I i came down to the bar at age 32 instead of kind of 24 25 and lots of other people uh would would come back uh, come down to the bar i felt maybe i had to move there slightly sooner if i was going to do it at young enough an age to uh, have a reasonable career at it and, and spend a reasonable time doing it so you know it just it felt like the right time um um if the application had been knocked back, I'd have shrugged and done it again and applied again in a year or two's time. You know, so so sorry, so one of the one other element is like, I did keep asking myself, well, look, if you got to the end of your career and you hadn't taken silk, what would you think? Uh, and I think I'd have regarded it as a missed opportunity. So I'd, it just felt like the right time and felt like something that I'd regret not doing.
2: When you say it felt like the right time, going back to when you became a barrister, did you feel like this is it. I have landed. This is what I wanted to do. Did the work start coming from the start or, you know, because it was, it was pretty, you know, a a big risk to take going from being a GP to a barrister where, you know, for the first few years, it's really hard to get money.
1: But I I suppose two things are true. The first is it wasn't maybe as much of a risk for me as it was for other people, because I was allowed to continue practicing as a GP. So, you know, nominally, by day I was a barrister, and by night I was a GP. It was kind of the world's worst superhero, um, so I did I did that for from 2000 or whenever whenever I went to so I went came down to the bar in 2002. So from 2002 to 2011, so for the first nine years I, I I was a GP and a barrister at the same time. So that took some of the risk out of it, but yeah, I mean, for the first one of the one of the, the funny things about the first five or six months of lockdown, remember the first three or four months of lockdown? It was it was like being a, a second or third year junior counsel again because I was kind of sitting at home checking my email twenty times a day, just waiting for something to happen, uh, because nothing was happening. Nobody knew what was going to happen with the court. So we did bring back that slightly uncomfortable memory. But I felt less unease about it than I know a lot of colleagues do. Um, in in part because I was getting, you know, some work. So there was always that slight sense of forward momentum. But also, I didn't absolutely need it to succeed because, sure, look, worst case scenario, I could go back to being a GP and having learned to really like it, um, that was a lot less of a uh, a grim prospect than maybe it had been at around the time that I was applying.
2: Mm. Does that make sense? No, that absolutely makes sense. And like, did you feel, going back to that, when when you became a barrister, was it like, this is it. Like, this is the light bulb moment that I've been waiting for. This is what I love.
1: Yeah, it was a bit of a bit of that. I mean, my my my, my real dream remains to have my own radio show. That's what I that's what I'd really like to do. Um, the uh, you know, re- re- recurring dream of, of, of uh, turning up to the Jerry Ryan show uh, when I used to do it. And they said Jerry's not in today. Can you take over? Absent that, absent somebody giving me my own radio show, uh, I mean, it's it's you know it, it's a brilliant job, and it's a it's a it's a brilliant job for lots of reasons. You're let into people's lives at a time of the most remarkable crisis, and on the flip side, because I do I do work in the civil side, I do work for both plaintiffs and defendants. Again, you come into somebody's life where they either where they believe themselves to have been terribly injured by a doctor's wrongdoing or a dentist's wrongdoing but where they actually have been injured. And again, you've got to help them through that process and either lead them to the point where the the law does its inadequate best to try and set them back where they were before they were injured or or where they, they have to accept that, that, that there isn't a case and it may be time to, to put that away and, and, and get on with their lives. So there are a lot of times when meeting clients and dealing with institutions in cases, it, it does feel a little bit like being back in a general practice with my, with my stethoscope around my neck. Um, so, so that part of it, you know, is almost common to both professions. I mean, for all that people laugh at lawyers and think that they're, you know, I remember one of our lecturers describing the law as a caring profession when we were in university, and we all laughed our heads off. But actually, when you're in a room with a client and when you're helping somebody through a crisis, there is that element of it. And then the other element about it that, that is very different, um, which is that I, I never found medicine very intellectually interesting. I knew I was never going to be a Nobel Prize winner in medicine. I was never going to push the frontiers. And then a lot of what medicine involves, involves uh, working your way through a list. It's quite algorithmic. You've come to see me today. You tell me you've got a pain, right? Well, the next thing I need to know is what kind of pain it is. I need to know where it is. And you work your way through a list. And in truth, there can only be two or three answers. Um, where with law, there can be this amazing alchemy of um, facts, Uh legal arguments, the scope to, to make new law, to think about um, um, how you weave those together in a, in a narrative that ultimately best assists a court, best helps your client, um, best makes the argument. And and, and, and having that uh, additional element, I think, is the bit that, that, that really appeals.
2: You sound like someone who likes to be constantly challenged in their work and one question I have for you is do you feel constantly challenged in your work?
1: Again, the same people who would never accuse me of ever having a plan would probably also um, uh, not disagree with the the sentiment that at, at heart I'm really quite lazy but because I like the job and because I enjoy it, it doesn't feel like a challenge in the way that other things do and I've kind of sought out other things. I've written a couple of books, and, and 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 which kind of is kind of hard to set aside the idea, set set alongside the idea that that instinctively I feel quite lazy. But but maybe it comes back to the answer to the question. In a way, it doesn't. Yes, it's a challenge, but it's it doesn't feel like a challenge because it's one that I. I'm lucky enough to really enjoy. As as do It's one of the really amazing things about the law library is that in spite of how hard it is, particularly now, even compared to, say, 10 or 15 years ago, how hard it is to to make a career in the law library, the determination of people to try and succeed is, I think, a testimony to how interesting the job uh, can be and the rewards that it offered. I mean, if, if, if lawyers were really interested in money, um, which is which is the, the common lazy notion? They'd go and do something else that is far more instantly rewarding for the kind of self-starters who succeed in the in, in, in the law library. So it is it is about that that bit more. Um, uh, and like I say, I think it, it is in part because I don't enjoy it that I, I don't recognise the sense of challenge. Um, deadlines deadlines remain a challenge.
0: Well, speaking of deadlines, I was wanting to ask how your experience of being a Bloomsbury author has been. Do you enjoy the process of writing books? How have you found being an author?
1: I was working for a year in UCD and I was asked to co-author a book with somebody and that relationship did not prosper. And I realised it just wasn't going to work. And the afternoon where there had been a conversation about how it wasn't going to work. That evening also happened to be one of the dinings that you have to do at King's Inns. So you have to you have to sit down and, and have dinner. And I sat down beside somebody who I, I knew from Trinity. And I said, like, oh, I haven't seen you for ages. Um, what are you up to these days? He said, oh, I'm commissioning editor for Bloomsbury. And I said, that's funny. I have this idea for this medical law book. Uh, what do you think? And by the time, by the time we'd, 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 we'd finished dessert, all of a sudden, uh, I had kind of made a gentleman's agreement to write a book. So kind of that happened by accident as well. I, I find the simplest way to write a book is, is is to sign the contract first. And then you feel this moral obligation to actually deliver a book um, I, in the middle of doing second edition of, of another of the books. And the deadline is, I think, the end of April or I think the end of April, or I hope the end of May.
2: Um, <laughs> it's
1: April, so actually, I think. <laughs> There is, there is that slight sense of, of mounting horror um, because I'm, I'm conscious there's quite a bit still to be done.
0: This is quite the platform to break it to us. <laughs> um, I was going to ask, uh, just in general, what are the most memorable cases that you've been involved in?
1: The one that was simply the most fun because I, I simply couldn't have anticipated what it would, the media circus that it would turn into was this comparatively small circuit court case I did It was probably the first kind of medical negligence case that I had to run. And it was a a man who was suing Mount Carmel Hospital and a midwife because they refused to let him video every minute of his daughter's birth uh, and the precious first few minutes of her life. Now, it ultimately turned out that he had seven hours of videotape and the case turned on the fact that he'd been asked to turn the video off on two occasions for a small number of minutes. And he was absolutely determined to have his day in court. The case was thrown out. I think thrown out really after, after I think after two witnesses had given evidence, the judge basically said, I've had enough, this is, this is just rubbish. And there were people in court uh, journalists in court and they they got photographed on the way out of the court. Uh, and then they went on the Pat Kenny show the next morning to uh, seek to justify their position. I, I think around that time, you start to realize, wow, you know, the, 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 this is a very peculiar job. So I woke up in the morning and people were texting me going, you're being mentioned on Pat Kenny, because they were reading out bits of the of the newspaper article. So I think, I think because that was the first and because it had this peculiar repercussion at the time because of the the the, you know, the really honest and fervent belief of of this family which i'm sure they they still feel that they were wronged in some way by the hospital i suppose kind of opened my eyes a little bit to how big a case can feel for a person and that may be and, and then other uh, i mean there's always you know there's always interesting cases i mean the some interesting matters, legal matters that arose are, are matters that weren't even cases. So the death of Savita Halapanavar, for example, is something that I think every lawyer working in the kind of area that I work in h- had an interest in, its repercussions, and ultimately its, its impact for the law and abortion in the state. And arising out of that, I ended up talking to an Oireachtas committee about kind of, the future shape of, of abortion law. Um, so look, you know, I've been lucky that there have been loads but in truth, you know, some of the most interesting are the ones I can't really talk about because they're, they're behind closed doors, or um, because I think even if you you could establish which cases they were, because it's just kind of not really appropriate to discuss them in a public forum. Which again goes back to what I was saying earlier, and what I hope survives the edit, uh, which is that medicine um, is, uh, or that law and medicine have that curious intersection that you are very often dealing with the the most personal aspects of people's lives.
2: Can I ask you about the Marie Fleming case? Uh, you were highly involved in that. Um, it was a very prominent case in Ireland. And if I could just ask you uh, to talk about your involvement in that case.
1: Be- because it was in the case, both in the High Court and in the Supreme Court, uh, to some extent, there's kind of little enough that that I can say, save for this um, that Mary was one of the most impressive people that i've i think I've ever met in my life um the um the resilience and the patience and the humanity that she displayed through that long process was really rather inspirational, particularly given you know that she was as a as a matter of law always facing such an an uphill challenge, but in both big and little things. It, it was you know a privilege to be there. When the case was before the High Court on the day that Mary gave evidence, the, the the big thing was on display. Here was somebody who was dying and who wanted to end their own life, you know, telling their story to a packed courtroom, uh, in a story that, that really really resonated, and then it was present in the in the small things. So the, the judges because she because she was wheelchair bound, she couldn't come up into the normal uh, dock that the witness would sit in. So the judges came down and and sat uh, beside her to to hear her evidence. And it was in a, in a very rare way, you know, a, a, a privilege to be there, and you know, a, a privilege to have been part of her legal team. I mean, look in truth, I, I was I was just the junior counsel, the 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 the. the People who really gave us a shout were two absolutely fantastic senior counsel in uh, the High Court, uh, Ronan Murphy and Brian Murray, and then in the Supreme Court, uh, Francis Kieran came into the case and phenomenal brain. And but, you know, to, to have been part of it uh, was, you know, hugely important. Um, uh, and again, it's, it's, it's that thing of being part of somebody's personal journey. And you know, a year or two later, when, when we heard that she died, it was, it was really, really sad. Uh, and her funeral was at once um, both a very sad occasion, but also a, a, a celebration of somebody who had spent their last years trying to achieve something both for herself and for a wider community of terminally ill people who would like to have the opportunity whether that is right or wrong. And in a way, you don't have to make a moral judgment on it, whether that is right or wrong. Because if you think it's wrong, you don't have to do it. Uh, that they would have that opportunity to determine the the, the, the timing of their, their own death.
2: Do you remember when you got the brief in the case?
1: Yes, I do. But but it happened somewhat informally in that I think I had done, back to radio, I think again, I think I had done a piece on on the Pat Kenny show and Mary's partner, Tom Curran was on as well. Um, and then he rang me and mentioned that there was talk of a challenge and I put him in touch with uh, really excellent solicitor, Bernadette Part, um, who then kind of took took things over. And then I was briefed as part of that. So I had I'd kind of kind of known it was coming. I mean, there are times when a brief arrives on your desk and, and you, you can't quite believe that you're being Brought into a particular case because of, uh, you know, because of its importance or because of because it really resonates with you and in a way. That's not one of those because, as I say, I kind of kind of I kind of known in advance.
2: Can I can I bring you back? You mentioned um, when in the High Court when the three judges left and went and sat down beside Mary. Was it just one of those moments that you'll always remember?
1: Whenever the the system. Bends to the requirements of a particular plaintiff because that plaintiffs own personal circumstances are so harrowing that's always a real pause for thought that um, and again it goes back to something I said earlier on which is the idea that, that that the part of people's lives that you're sometimes stepping into for the period that you're involved in a legal case on their behalf can often be so intimate uh, and that was a reminder of one of those intimate moments but you know I've I've, I've been at, at a woman's bedside uh, as she was dying for the purpose of taking evidence from her. As I say, those moments bring home to you um, the the challenging circumstances in, in in which people have to live and sometimes die in this state.
2: How do you deal with the emotional impact of cases like that?
1: Well, the, 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 the glib answer, I suspect, is that... Actually, you just get used to it, it's just the job. But it may also be, and, and maybe it's not, maybe you don't deal with it. Um, maybe you just get on, you go on to the next gig and the gig after that and the gig after that and and, and maybe you don't ultimately ever slow down and, and, and think about it and maybe it'll occur to me again. But the, the third answer is probably that it's a doctor. Um, and the reality is, in general, it doesn't matter how well or how badly a case goes. You're not going to find yourself up to your wrists in blood, squeezing somebody's heart, trying to get it going again. Uh, that only ever happened to me once, but I, you know, as I say it to you, I can see it far more vividly than any, you know anything that ever happened in a courtroom, um, and you know, it'd probably be easier to have a, a sense of perspective
2: on a more serious topic and I, I know you're limited in what you can talk about here but you have been involved in the cervical check cases we're going through a time now where pandemic people aren't being screened for cancers as much as they should be for example but where do you think we're going to end up when we come out of the pandemic do you do you see that there's going to be a sea of cases coming through the courts for negligence
1: it's hard to know. Mm. Um, there, there's two parts to the answer to your question. The first is a backwards-looking part, and the second is a forward-looking part. One of the, the really difficult things that all of the cervical cancer cases um, bring to the fore is that there is a difference between screening and ordinary medical care. Um and screening isn't designed to specifically diagnose you or to diagnose me. The hope is that it will. Um it's designed to work across a whole population. But built into that is the fact that because it is a population based system, people, patients, conditions will fall through the crack. Cracks. And you see it too in vaccination schemes. So, a vaccination scheme is about making the population better. It may well be that even with the best vaccine in the world, there will be people who will have an idiosyncratic reaction. And it is, of course, of no comfort to the person whose cervical cancer is missed or to the person who has the idiosyncratic reaction that the population is now protected because they are the ones who've suffered the problem. And that clash between medicine as an individualized process and population-based health is a really difficult one. Um, And and it's writ large in screening programs and it's writ large in vaccination programs. And there is simply nothing that can be done about that, because that's just the way it works. That's just what happens with screening programs. Um, and, And it may ultimately be something... To be thought about is is there a way of of addressing that population-based systems, when they meet individual-based healthcare demands, is there anything that can be done about addressing that gap? And certainly no-fault schemes have been proposed. And looking looking backwards and fixing those, you know, something like so Charles Meenan's recent um, Excellent review of um, uh, the, the healthcare negligence situation. Talks about the idea that look, there may be a role, limited role, for no fault schemes in certain scenarios. And interestingly, one of those scenarios is where public health meets individual harm. Looking forward, which is the, another limb of the question that you asked me, negligence is always to be judged by. Um, Did you fall short of the standards of the equivalent clinician acting with ordinary care in similar situations? So is a healthcare system that was unable to have clinics because of legitimate public health arguments And we can park the question, the fight about whether they're correct public health arguments, but legitimate public health arguments in that they're bona fide and they're reasoned uh, that have been put forward and have led to uh, clinics being cancelled. Is that negligent? Um, And there's an argument to say, no, it's, it's the very opposite of negligent on the public health basis. But if I'm the person whose cancer was missed because my clinic didn't happen, well, how do I feel about that argument? And that is a future iteration of the same principle, that a doc, if my clinic is cancelled, I can't diagnose your cancer. I'm not. Surely I cannot be negligent if I didn't have the opportunity of seeing you. Now, there may be exceptions to that, which is that somebody may well have rung with symptoms that were so obviously the sign of cancer in their particular case, that some arrangement should have been made by any competent system to arrange to see them. But that's different from the cancellation of of routine clinics seeing people with routine symptoms. So again, it's always going to depend on um, the facts of an individual case, but it is going to revolve around the resolution of healthcare decisions made in the public interest to benefit the population, set against the fact that individual people suffer individualised harm as a result of those non-negligent decisions.
0: And you mentioned this a little bit, but maybe you could give us some further thoughts on the idea of replacing the current negligence-based system for medical injuries with a no-fault compensation system.
1: I think the the reality to no-fault schemes is that they are very difficult to work unless you have an exceptionally high functioning public health scheme that ensures that people will get all of the services they need through the healthcare system. Where you don't have such a system, then even if you introduce some form of no fault scheme, you are still going to have enormous rows about the value of cases. So it doesn't solve things in the same way as it might do in other other jurisdictions. And it's also worth thinking about as well that the transition to that sort of scheme may well be philosophically quite a difficult one uh, for people within healthcare professions in a small country who don't want to see a system that can very unfairly perhaps be categorised as a kind of no smoke without fire system. Well, did you see that fella? There was a payout about his care. People are as entitled to vindicate their position um, and vindicate the idea that they did nothing wrong and that there should be no compensation as somebody is entitled to have treated as true the argument that they should be entitled to compensation because they suffered a harm. Um, And Transitioning from the system that we have at the moment to a different system may bring with it all sorts of um, challenges, um, even even assuming that you could operate that sort of system in um, a country with as dysfunctional a public health care system as Ireland's.
0: And yes, I guess in some ways this has formed a little bit of a backdrop of things that we've been talking about, but we haven't really mentioned the actual COVID-19 pandemic and the responses to it. I think one of the big talking points we have at the moment is on vaccine passports. And I was wondering if you could give us maybe some of your thoughts on the idea of having them and potentially being asked to produce a vaccine passport to access uh, public services.
1: It's, it's a it's, I, I've say I think Again, philosophically, it seems a little bit challenging, given that there are certain categories of person who will be excluded from vaccines until the very end. It seems tough that they would then be excluded from resuming participation in society. There's also the row as well, or the argument as well, that you know there are people who have been accessing vaccines in other jurisdictions because they have the, the money to do so. And should that be allowed to buy them a certain advantage? Probably it shouldn't. Um, If we assume that we've done all of this on the basis of a kind of communal solidarity, then I think the same sort of communal solidarity should probably apply to the gradual reopening of society. That's not to say that there there are not arguments that can be made. Uh, And that's one of the really interesting things about all of the discussions about COVID is there isn't a right answer. The reality is, however you legislate for this, however you police it, you're going to be wrong in in one direction or other.
2: Going back to cervical check, I know you're limited in what you can say because you've been involved in cases and so I'm therefore not going to ask you about specific cases. However, we've seen so many Irish women on the likes of The Late Late Show going abroad to America, Mexico for treatment, young women dying. There have been there is people fighting for their lives like Vicky Phelan. Then there is people that have died. Should Irish women have to go to court in their last days of their lives, fighting for security for their family, for awards?
1: Yeah, I mean, look. Ideally, no one would have to go through the experience of a court hearing for any claim damages. It should be possible. Most cases are resolvable. Um, Clearly the Cervical uh, cervical Check Tribunal has been established. Too late for some of the people who participate, uh, who who had to participate in trials. Um, And it, it remains to be seen how effectively it works as a system. But yes, in an, in an ideal world, nobody who is dying or who has a terminal illness should have to go to court to assert their rights. But it is also true to say, and this is an awful thing to say, um, nobody has an unanswerable entitlement to say that they have suffered a wrong solely because they are terminally ill. Mm. It, it doesn't necessarily follow that because, and I'm conscious of how awful this sounds, and I don't mean it to sound awful, but I am dying. I say, Grania, it is your fault, and I require you to compensate me without me going to court because I'm dying and because I say it's your fault. But what happens if your answer to that is, it's not my fault? What happens if your answer to it is, it's nobody's fault? That's the way screening systems work. Or it's not my fault, it's Rachel's fault. And what if Rachel's answer is, well, look, uh, it's not uh, my fault or Gráinne's fault, it's the fault of the Irish state. Or what if all three of you say, well, it's not our fault, we told you six times to come back for your follow-up appointment and you never came back for your follow-up appointment. Or what if the answer is, we are so sorry to say this to you, But the cancer that we failed to spot in your situation was on the left-hand side, and you're now dying of a cancer on your right-hand side. So it is absolutely true to say that in in an ideal world, all of these matters will be resolved, perhaps within some form of no-fault scheme. But it is also important to say that if you are advancing an argument to say that I have suffered a harm because of a wrong I say you did to me and you don't accept my contention. You simply think it's wrong as a matter of fact or as a matter of law or as a matter of principle. If we assume that this is a society in which we at least try to deal in a way that portions a fair parcel of rights and obligations to everybody, it does follow that As awful as a particular person's circumstances might be, and it might be Vicky Feeling, it might be Mary Fleming, that it is open to respondents to a legal action to say, we are so sorry for your personal situation. We are so sorry for it. But, and either that but is a point of substance or it is not. But if it is honestly made, if it has legal force if it is a genuine point of principle that should guide the state to achieve some overriding purpose, must it be set aside? And I feel awful as I say that. But it is a function of, our, of a society that's based around rights and obligations and dealing fairly with everybody, that the mere fact that I assert that you've caused me a wrong and that I am dying and therefore shouldn't be put through the process of arguing that in an ordinary case is not an unanswerable proposition. Um, And clearly the best way it should be dealt with is there should be some system in place that deals in a circumscribed way with providing some manner of compensation without the need to prove fault. But then we're back to where we started, which is even if the, you don't have to have a row about who's right and who's wrong, you may still have to have a row about whether the wrong that was done should attract X compensation or Y compensation and Z compensation. So even if you do introduce a system that says you don't need to have a, uh, to go to court, you're not going to introduce a system that says, uh, how much do you want? Let me get out my checkbook. Because there may well again be Genuine points of really important legal principle about what harms are compensated, what harms flow, and what losses flow from the um, the damage that is done by the fact that you are now terminally ill. What would have happened to you anyway? Did our negligence actually cause you to be terminally ill, or would it have happened anyway? And these are all horrible, different buckets of cold water to pour on a correctly emotive and very forceful argument but there isn't there isn't a neat resolution to it I wish there was Mm. and you can assume that if there was a neat simple political solution to it you know a government would embrace it in the blink of an eye
2: yeah and all food for thought I suppose Simon going forward Um, um it's been a pleasure speaking to you before we let you go though we have to do our quick fire round with Rachel on some lighter topics um, and we look forward to speaking to you again, hopefully about your upcoming book with Bloomsbury um, and good luck with that. Which is nearly finished. Deadline.
0: <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> um, yeah. So I just have some quick fire questions at the end. Obviously it's been a really fascinating episode with some very heavy topics, but just to leave it on a slightly lighter note, we've got some quick questions. Um, how have you been getting through lockdown and what are your survival tips?
1: And um, I've done every possible cliché. So uh, breaking bear, bread or baking bread, uh, um, playing musical instruments, uh, exercise. Um, and uh, so, so I've, kind of, I've kind of ticked every cliché box. I haven't done anything wildly exciting, new or original. I did, I did go for my, despite having grown up by the sea, um, I loathe swimming in the sea. I did go for my first sea swim last week. And I regard that box as firmly ticked.
0: Well, then I'm just about to ask, what are your three things to bring to a desert island? But I think we can now safely assume you would probably not enjoy being on a desert
1: island. No, No, I'd love to be. be (laughs) Uh, No, 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 no. you're confusing two different things. Uh, you're, You're confusing swimming in cold sea and swimming in lovely tropical sea. So uh, I would bring uh, I would I, I, I bring uh, a cricket bowling machine, so that I could just while away the hours um, waiting to be rescued uh, playing cricket. I would bring uh, some kind of snorkeling stuff, so that I could enjoy uh, the the lovely sea, and I, I'd bring I'd bring some. In true Desert Island Disc style, I'd bring some manner of great work of literature, like the complete Dickens or the complete Shakespeare or something like that for reading material, uh, kindling and toilet paper.
0: Looking towards happier times when the world does open up, where will be the first place you want to go on holiday?
1: One of the kids, uh, the, the the boy really wants to go to Sri Lanka for some reason. One of the girls uh, really likes the Durrells and wants to go to Corfu. I've been banging on about Namibia for years. So various people want to go to Namibia. And uh, the Scottish Islands then was another uh, another recent recent suggestion about my life. So that's that's the list of contenders. We will, of course, have to look at the fa- family finances. So it it, it, it it may well just be balanced Skellig's again.
0: <laughs> well, it might be a bit tricky to come up with a compromise with all of those. <laughs>
1: the ultimate road trip. <laughs>
0: um, and then just finally, uh, could you give us your favourite Bloomsbury book?
1: Well, no, I'm going to cheat here because I'm assuming it doesn't have to come from Bloomsbury Professional. Uh, Not at all. uh, So in which case, it's kind of a no brainer. Um, My eldest daughter, who is now 30, grew up with the Harry Potter books. So from very early on, uh, I read them out loud to her. So I have since read all seven books to all five children uh out loud with kind of different voices for all of the characters um with the, the peak of my entire existence um being one of the kids coming home from school so yeah at the end of class today during quiet time the teacher put on stephen fry reading the uh the harry potter books uh I thought, oh god that's where i'm going to be found out you're way better uh so i <laughs> was kind of the, the, peak, the peak peak of my uh, yeah. uh my my creative endeavors in life so by 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 a, a country mile the uh uh, the Harry Potter books, with with maybe some Margaret Atwood uh, in in behind.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, I think the Harry Potter books have formed a real like core of family memories for a lot of people. So that's that's wonderful. Uh, thanks so much for coming on with us and talking at length about all of these really fascinating topics. It's been wonderful to talk I'm to you. Sorry for
1: talking at such length.
0: That's it for this episode of Obiter Dicta. Coming up next time, we speak to Dr. David Kenny, Associate Professor of Law at Trinity College, about constitutional issues arising from COVID-19 and other topics. Thanks for listening.